Well, hey, everybody. This is Justin Frankino. Um, we actually missed the first part of this sermon. Uh, didn't get recorded, so I decided to go back, and it was kind of an intro to set up where, where we go. I missed about five minutes of it, so I just wanted to kind of run you through what I had, had began, and then we'll kind of pick up. You'll hear me go from this to live, so don't freak out. Um, but we are in Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to go through the first 14 verses. Um, this, the title of the message is called When Bad is Good. And this is the halfway point in Ecclesiastes. We're six chapters down and we have six chapters to go. And in this, the first half of the book, Solomon spent most of his time telling us about his personal quest um, to find meaning and purpose and, and value in his life. And, and he had said, you know, I've done it all. I've, I've tried it all. There is nothing that you and I have tried that Solomon has not only tried, but bigger and better, right? He's gone down every avenue far than we have. He goes, you know, you're looking for purpose and money. I made a billion and a half dollars every year of my life. I was richer than most countries. Um, you're looking for purpose in sex. He goes, man, do I need to remind you about the thousand women that I have as, as my wives and concubines? I've done that. How about stuff? He says, I've got so much stuff. There isn't anything else for me to even buy. I am Walmart, right? Success, wisdom. He's the wisest, most powerful king that Israel has ever known. I mean, the list goes on and on. He says, I did it all. I tried it all. And his experiment led him to the conclusion that everything under the sun Everything that he can experience with his five sentences is ultimately meaningless apart from God. But now he's going to turn a little corner in the book, and, and don't worry, he will still be shouting meaningless. But in chapter 7, um, it's going to look a little bit more like Proverbs Solomon than Ecclesiastes has. Um, he's an old man now, and he wants to, to give us some wisdom, wants to drop some wisdom on us. And I like the way that Matt Chandler framed it. And we said in the service, it's kind of like we're sitting down to coffee with our grandpa, um, but not the gentle sort of Werther's distributing grandpa, but it's the old surly, you know, I served in Vietnam kind of grandpa. You know what I'm talking about? Um, he's the one that would kind of ask you for what you want to drink. And then regardless of your response, he gives you black coffee. And then if you ask for cream or sugar, he slaps you. Right, and uh, he, he kind of he gruffly invites you over to sit down on the couch. It's one of those pla the couches with the weird plastic on it, and he tells us the stories, you know, about killing commies with his bare hands. And there was no choice; I had to. There was, you know, it was the only option. But Grandpa Solomon, he's going to impart some wisdom on us that can only come with age, uh, having seen it all. And it's sort of like, you know, I was thinking about when when I first met. Pastor Larry, when I, when I meet with Pastor Larry, um, you know, regardless of, of my situation, he can always say, well, yeah, I remember back in, you know, 1978, I faced that decision or, or three different times in three different churches, we, we went through that. And just the amazing, there's nothing I can bring to him that he has already seen, hasn't already gone through. And there's a wisdom um, that comes with age and experience, can come with age and experience. And in chapter seven, Grandpa Solomon is going to tell us that life isn't always what it seems. Uh, he's going to tell us that sometimes bad is good. In the first 14 verses, and then and then next week, uh, the, f the following week, we'll look at how sometimes good is bad in the second half of chapter 7. And he starts by gruffly grunting, hey, I got a pop quiz for you, young buck. And he's going to give us this, this quiz that I want us to take alongside with Solomon. He says, do you like laughter better than crying? It's a true or false quiz. So as we go through this, say true or false for you. Um, do you like laughter better than crying? Do you like weddings better than funerals? Uh, you like birthdays better than your death day or someone's final day. You like compliments better than criticism. You'd rather be receive a compliment than be criticized. You like shortcuts better than the long haul, the easy way as opposed to the more difficult, longer uh, route. You like the good old days better than the way things are now. You prefer um, yesterday to today. 
and what grandpa tells us is he goes, man, if you answered true to any of these, you fail the quiz because they're all false. He says all the things that look to be negative are actually better than the positive things. And at this point, we're looking at each other going, oh boy, grandpa's off his rocker, right? He's lost his mind. Time to shop for homes. But grandpa, he, he's, he's, he's using the word eight um, times in this first half of chapter seven, the word better. He uses the word better eight times. And he's going to show us that sometimes the worst tasting medicine actually has the best cure. In chapter six, he showed us that prosperity and wealth are not always good. Like if they're not taken from God's hand and, and we don't thank him for those things, then they're meaningless. But in chapter seven, he's going to show us that good, that the bad things, adversity, it's not always bad. That in fact, great things can come from affliction and pain. So in verses one through 14, grandpa's going to show us the good that can come from things that we might typically call bad. So the first one is that funerals are better than weddings. Uh, first Funerals are better than weddings. He's looking through that coffee steam talking to us. And uh, verse 1 in, in the NIV, it says, A good name is better than perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Um, now I'm going to switch you over to the live feed and connect it with what, what I was, was saying at the church um, a few days ago. Now he's not saying that dying is better than being born. Um, I mean, we, we couldn't... We couldn't die if we weren't born. So he's, he's not comparing it in that way. This is what he is saying. The word name that we would use in English, it was the Hebrew word Shem. And then the word perfume was the Hebrew word Shemin. So he's saying Shem is better than Shemin. It was this uh, play on words in, in Hebrew. Uh, it was supposed to be kind of a joke. Doesn't play well to this crowd, but trust me, to a Jew, it was hilarious. Okay, They were rolling on the floor. We're like, what? I don't get it. Um, There are two significant days in our lives where our name is prominent, okay? It's on our birth announcement and in our obituary, okay? I'm I'm being very optimistic here. Hey, you should see the way I take care of myself. I I think I'm in the long haul. But the question is, the question is, what, what's between those two significant days? And you look on a birthstone, and it's just this little dash. That's it. Your entire life is summed up by a hyphen, okay? And we see in Scripture, it says, life is but a vapor. We're here today, and we're gone tomorrow, but it's a significant vapor. Because what we do within that dash has eternal significance and consequences, And what did we do with that dash? Was it a lovely fragrance or was it a foul stench? In Proverbs, Solomon, same author, he says, The name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. In Proverbs 22, he says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. He says, Better than all the riches in the world is to have a good name or or a good reputation. In Hebrew culture, names had a lot more significance and meaning than than it does today in ours. And, And the honor that was associated with one's name or reputation was held in high regard. You think about names in, in our time, you know, certain names will come to, to mind. And what, do you, what is associated with that name? When you hear Abraham Lincoln, right? It's this grandeur of, of the honest Abe and the freedom of, of slaves and, and all these things. But then you hear a name like Benedict Arnold, and that has become an equivalence to, to traitor, to being a traitor. Mother Teresa, you think, oh, you know, if she's being a Mother Teresa, she is being kind and generous and, and a heart for the outcast. Then you hear Judas... 
and a whole different image gets conjured up. And then we use a name like Adolf Hitler, which has almost become cliche or a complete synonym to evil. And you ask yourself, when you put your name in the blank, what are people going to think? When that dash is over and the final day comes and your name comes up, do people, are people going to roll their eyes? Are people going to wince? Are they going to go, man, man, they loved Jesus well. And they loved people deeply. Solomon's suggesting here, if you die with a good name, you can no longer tarnish the dash. It, it's already, your life is over. It's, it, this, your fate is sealed. But at birth, you have a lot of time to mess it up. And ending a good life is be- better than beginning an unknown life. A life well lived is better than a life unlived. That's his point. Then Grandpa takes a sip of coffee, chuckles, hands you a stale graham cracker, and goes on to the second part. It says, crying is better than laughing. Crying is better than laughing. This one, it gets a little bit tougher. It says, better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Now, Solomon is not saying you have to sit on pine cones and think about death all day long. Eight times, we know, he comes back to in Ecclesiastes, he says, well, if this is all meaningless, what's left for us? He says, enjoy food, enjoy drink, and enjoy the lot God's given you in your work. He's not saying enjoyment's bad. We've, we've seen that. We've been there. But Grandpa is saying, hey, listen, remember we talked about he had those parties where he had 20,000 people showing up at his place, just blowing the roof off the thing? He goes, I had parties after party." But it was at the funerals, it was at the funerals where I grew up. Why is it better? Because no one is cutting into a perfectly cooked filet, sipping Merlot, laughing at exaggerated stories with a table full of friends and family going, man, I wonder if things are okay with me and God. Man, I wonder what's going to happen when I die. But the wise man walks into the funeral, and he not only mourns the dead, but he says, man, that's going to be me someday. And we ask the big questions in in those moments, and we have to ponder and consider what really matters for us and for the ones we love. That's why David said in the Psalms, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If we understand the brevity of life, this is going to end. Each of us, it's appointed. Each of us wants to die. We understand that brevity. We understand the mortality of our souls. He says there's wisdom in that because we have to consider life's big questions. And people always ask, how can God allow the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that he allows in this world? That doesn't seem like a good God would do that. But Solomon's saying here, look, there must be something better. There is something better than a pain-free life. There is something better than a sorrow-free life because God, and we have to understand this, God is not as much concerned about our momentary happiness as he is that we grow up. God is more concerned that we mature because if he protected us from every inconvenience and every pain that came into our lives, we would never cease to be infants. Spiritually, trials are the food of faith. It is written all over the New Testament. 
But what happens is we numb ourselves with parties and entertainment and laughter because we are terrified of the silence. It's because it's in that silence. If we think of, man, if we keep moving, we're like sharks. If we stop, we will die. But if we keep moving, then we won't have to face ourselves. We won't have to face the the sorrow and the heartache and the pain and the confusion that, that does exist. It does exist. It is reality. So if we numb ourselves, it's not as though all of a sudden it's not there. We just ignore it. But that doesn't make the problem go away. And that's why Warren Wearsby said, listen, laughter is a medicine for the broken heart. There's a place for laughter. But sorrow is a hearty meal for the soul. If you want to be fed, if we want to grow up, then it's going to be through pain and sorrow in the facing of our own mortality. Number three says criticism is better than compliments. Criticism is better than compliments. Grandpa says, listen, kid, or sport, or whatever your grandpa calls you, another thing that looks bad but is actually good is this. He says, it's better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. He said, I had 20,000 people every night at those ragers, but most of them were freeloaders, they were ear ticklers, and they were just following the crowd. He says, you know what I am unbelievably grateful for? It was that close friend, it was that dear friend that was not afraid to walk up to me and go, you know what, you're the problem. You're the issue. You're what's wrong. <clears throat> At Bible school, I was, there was a teacher that I had grown close to, and one day she walked straight up to me, and uh, she said, you know, you're not a very generous person, are you? I was like, oh, that's good to see you too. Um, I mean, it, it stung, right? It's like, that's, that's not, you're not a very nice person. Um, and, and, don't, and, we, and we go through, when someone says that thing, because it was, it was true, and it, was, it had a big impact on my life, but when we hear that kind of rebuke, like we go through these stages, the first one's denial, like I am too, I am generous, you don't know me, right? And then the next one is to kind of compare, oh, 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 I've got issues, oh, oh I've got problems, let's talk about you for a second, because you know what, I've been noticing some things about you. Right? And we kind of flip it around on them. So we go through these cycles, but then eventually come to the place and go, you know what? She's right. She's right. And I did have to look at my own, my, the way I deal with finances and, and my possessions and my time and saw that I was stingy and I, wa- I was cheap. And God used that in some great ways. The fool surrounds themselves. The fool surrounds themselves with people who just say how great you are or at least never confront you with the real issues. But it's the wise man or the wise woman who puts themselves around people who, and and lovingly, in the context of a trusting relationship, that's an important part, not running around telling people what's wrong with them, but in the context of trust and relationship, we say, man, I love you, but this has got to go. Like, I might be wrong, I might not be seeing this clearly, but but that's got to change. And he says in verse 6, a fool's laughter is quickly gone, like thorns crackling in a fire. This is also meaningless. It was this word picture, this pot with thorns underneath of it, and you're going to try to cook something, and the thorns would, would immediately burst up into flames. So at first it looked like we got a fire raging. Like you try to start a fire on a camping trip, and you're like, we're really cooking now. But then immediately, just as quickly as the fire started, it goes out. It doesn't last, and it's not good for cooking food. And he goes, in the same way, when you get a compliment, like, don't you love that when someone says something to you and they're tickling your ears? And at first it sounds really, really good, but then that quickly fades away and it doesn't last. He says, the rebuke of a wise man can change your life forever. And the fourth one, he says, the long haul is better than the short cut. The long haul is better than the short cut. The hard way is a worthy 
investment. That's what he's saying. I don't know if, if any of you have ever hiked up. My favorite, um, my favorite hike is Skyline, and this is a, a panorama from the top of the, from the saddle. And I love going up there, but one of the things that makes this view so sweet is the aching muscles and it's the burning lungs associated with it. Like you earned that view. You, you hiked and you got up there and it looks so great. Now, if there was a buddy who came in a helicopter and landed in the same spot you are, sees the same view you do, and he looks around and he goes, it's nice, but I don't know that it was worth the hundreds of dollars I spent for the helicopter ride, right? But in the long run, the hard way was worth it, and you appreciated the end more. And he says here in verse 7, extortion turns wise people into fools and bribes corrupt the heart. Now, first of all, well, what does that have to do with shortcuts? Well, David Jeremiah said a bribe is nothing but a shortcut dressed in green. A bribe is nothing but a shortcut dressed in green. And what we do is we use money or assets to get our way without earning it. But doing that, it has a larger price because it corrupts our integrity and the purity of our heart. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't take the shortcut. Remember when the devil was offering him in the wilderness? He goes, man, I'll give you the world. Just do this. But Jesus took the long, hard way through, not around. And because of the cross, that's why we have hope beyond the sun. The title of this message series. The only reason there's any positivity in Ecclesiastes whatsoever is because Jesus took the hard way, not the shortcut. And he came to show us that the path is not around the trials, but it's directly through the trials. And in verse 8, he says, finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. He says, the end is better than the beginning. And we know this. Like, if you ever started, like, you're in school and you have to write a big paper or you're filling your taxes out or, or whatever it is, and you've got this big thing coming up, and you go, man, this is going to be tough. And in the middle of it, it's tough. But at the end, if you went through it the right way, the finish is so sweet and it's so satisfying. And that's why it's so important to begin with the end in mind. To begin with the, the end of mind, I remember when I was an intern here, Pastor Dan used to always ask me, you know, I'd come up with him with some harebrained idea, half of them were like illegal, and he was like, look, what is the purpose of what you're doing? He always asked, what is the goal? Why are you doing this, and, and what do you want this to look like in the end? And, and what that does is that allows you to stay focused on what is important and where you're going. You think about in marriage, it's not just what is my wedding going to look like, but what do we want the last days of our marriage to look like? And as we raise children, we go, on graduation day, what kind of a child do we want to see? And your job, and you can apply it to any situation in our lives. And then in verse 9, he says, control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. So he talks about patience and, and, and controlling your temper because people who see the end goal have more patience to walk through the present. If you see the end goal, you're going to have more patience to walk through the present. You think about eating healthy and exercising, it's stupid, okay? Now, there are some weirdos out there who love it. I don't understand you. Jesus loves you too, but it's, you're weird. Um, but if you keep the end in mind, right, I want, to look, I want to look like this, or I want to be healthy, you have the goal of why you're doing what you're doing, it makes you less angry at the broccoli and the treadmill in the process, for those of you not in peak physical condition naturally like myself. Um, but that's what, what Paul is saying. It's what he's getting at in Romans 8 when he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And there's coming a day 
where we're going to stand before God in his presence, in his glorious presence, and we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And knowing that that's where we're going is going to make our present sufferings that much more endurable. Because we know this is not all there is. There is an end coming. And because of that future glory, we endure through the grace and power of God, the present. And then he says, the fifth one, today is better than yesterday. He says, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. And you know, don't we often do that? Like, we, we, everybody always thinks everything's getting worse, right? The nation, you know, used to be so much better, and the economy used to be so much better, and life was so much better, and everybody was a star athlete when they played in high school, right? No one ever rode the pine. No, we were all started, apparently, you know, 40 years ago. And we all want this Pleasantville idea, this good old days when everybody was, was exactly how they should do. And you know what I've, I've found as I get older? I'm falling into that same thing. Like, man, before the internet, when I was a kid, life was better. Before they had all this texting and emojis and these different things, and I blame everything on Facebook, basically. Um, and, and then we think, you know, I, I wish that there was, there's going to be a time again when I eat gluten and not be judged for it, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and we always go back, man, it was better back then, but that is a fantasy land. That is not reality, okay? Yesterday, the good old days, is a few blocks south of Unicornville. It doesn't exist. And we go, well, maybe you've got to go farther back. We think of the days in the wild, wild west, and then everything was easy. We didn't have the modern technology and all the problems that we have today. Really? Really? You want to you die from a toothache? That's better? You want to solve all your problems with leeches? Right? Living in a different time is not the solution. Being satisfied today with Jesus is where we are called to be, because this is where he has us. God has sovereignly placed each and every one of us in 2016. It's not a mistake. And then the last one, he says, wisdom is better than control. Wisdom is better than control. Wisdom is even better when you have money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. So he acknowledges, hey, money's good, but you need to accompany it with wisdom. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. And then he applies this wisdom some hard words. He says, accept the way God does things, but who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Wisdom is knowing that we don't know everything. Wisdom is knowing that we don't know everything. And the reality is, you and I are looking at like one piece of the puzzle, maybe a couple pieces of the puzzle. We get a little bit older, maybe we see four or five pieces. But only God sees the picture on the box. Only God sees how all these pieces fit together. My friend Ed Trenner preached on this, and he said, we need to be happy in prosperity, but remember in adversity. We need to be happy in prosperity, but remember in adversity. Enjoy the good times, but consider in the bad that both come from God. And that's a hard one for us to accept because we learn more in the classroom of trials than we do in the playground of pleasure. We learn and grow a lot more in the classroom of trials than we do in the playground of pleasure. That's why I love the the serenity prayer. You've probably heard it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
and see, we are, it simply acknowledges we're not in control. We cannot straighten out what God has designed or intended to be crooked. And wisdom is recognizing that God is steering this thing, not us. And the hard truth that he sends both the sunshine and the rain, the good times and the hard times. Because what we want to do is we want to look at things and go, well, this is bad, this is good, this is right, and this is wrong. God, you messed up here and you should have done this over there. But the reality is we don't know. And, and call, Grandpa Solomon, he looks over his cup of coffee and he goes, you need to slow your roll. Because sometimes the bad is good and the good is bad. I heard this story about a wise old Chinese woodcutter. Always listen to wisdom from a Chinese woodcutter. He lived on the troubled Mongolian border. One day, his favorite horse, a beautiful white mare, jumped the fence and was seized by the other side, by the, on the other side by the enemy. His friends came to comfort him. We're so sorry about your horse, they said. That's bad news. How do you know it's bad news? He asked. It might be good news. A week later, the man looked out his window to see his mare returning at breakneck speed. Beside him, a beautiful stallion. He put both horses into that enclosure, into the enclosure, and his friends came to admire the new addition. What a beautiful horse, they said. That's good news. How do you know it's good news, replied the man. It might be bad news. The next day, the man's only son tried to, decided to try the stallion. It threw him, and he landed painfully, breaking his leg. The friends made another visit, all of them sympathetic, saying, We are so sorry to hear about this. It is such bad news. How do you know it's bad news, he replied. It might be good news. Within a, war, within a month, war erupted between China and Mongolia. Chinese recruiters came through the area, pressing all the young men into the army. All of them perished, except the woodcutter's son, who couldn't go off to war because of his broken leg. You see, said the woodcutter, the things you considered good were actually bad, and the things that seemed bad were actually good. And just like the woodcutter's buddies, we try to label things good and bad without knowing what God is doing. It's sort of like, you know, when, when uh, Forrest Gump, he famously said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Solomon says, even after you bite into the chocolate and you know what's inside, you don't know how it's going to digest. Only God knows how this is all going to end and why we went this way. Like Job, we don't get the answers, the why questions that we ask. We don't know why God sends these things into our lives, okay? We don't know, but what we do know, for those who love him, for the believer, Romans 8 says God uses all of these things, all of these things. Remember in Ecclesiastes 3, he sends these ingredients into our lives, all the seasons, the laughter and the crying, the funerals and the weddings, he says he's using it all for good. And just because we can't see how all the pieces fit together in like five minutes, how we can't construct the puzzle, that does not make the puzzle maker an idiot. So Grandpa Solomon, he says, you see, kids, these bad things, they're God's medicine, and they don't taste great going down, but ultimately they're for your good. And they heal and they save. Now, Grandpa's going to go take his 2 p.m. nap, and he'll come back next week, and he'll tell us the second half. 
Hey guys, it's Justin again, um, stepping in and outside of time here. Pretty fun to do uh, for this sermon, probably the weirdest one I've ever spliced together. But at the end of the sermon, I actually gave a little illustration saying that there was a man who has walked this road of what we're talking about today when, when bad can be good. And this last week in the news, when I gave this sermon, a man named Monty Williams, he's an NBA coach uh, for my favorite team, the Thunder, and his wife um, was tragically killed in a car accident this last week, age of 44, she was driving three of their five children when a woman, uh, Susanna Donaldson, age 52, was in the other lane, uh, flying down the road, doing 92 in a 40, swerved to miss the car in front of her, and in a head-on collision, immediately took the life of Ingrid, Monty's wife, and the immense pain and sorrow that came into the life of the five children and, and Monty and into the NBA family is obviously insurmountable um, from human perspective. But Monty gave a, a eulogy for his wife, and we talked today about funerals being better than weddings, and I can't think of anybody who spoke to this better than what Monty did. So I wanted to splice in this audio clip of his funeral um, speech that we might um, consider our own mortality and what matters most in our lives. This is hard for my family, but this will work out. And my wife would punch me if I were to sit up here and whine about what's going on. That doesn't take away the pain. But it will work out because God causes all things to work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. See, the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just numb that, and it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you. Get outside of these walls, and you know it's true. This will work out. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times, and we're going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord. And that's what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate, because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. But I got five crumb snatchers I got to deal with. (laughs) I I love you guys for taking time out of your day to celebrate my wife. We didn't lose her. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'll miss holding her hand 
I'll miss talking with my wife. Um, Sam and Coach Donovan probably couldn't figure out why I always wanted to get out of the office, uh, me and Mo Cheeks. Um, Mo probably wanted to go do something else, but we always wanted to get out of the office. I just enjoy being with my wife. I enjoy being with my family. And most of the times we didn't do anything. We'd just be at the house sitting around um, doing nothing. I'm going to miss that. Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. Let's not lose sight of that family that also lost someone that they love. I love you guys. I hope I get a chance to hug and shake a hand and give a kiss on the cheek. But let's keep what's important at the forefront. Thank you.